We've been talking, as you continue to hear, uh, we've been talking about this, this theme uh, of how do we live as a community of faith that is, um, that both has clear, distinct purpose, but also is not bounded by a bunch of rules that people have to do to be either considered in or out. And, and that requires movement. Um, there's been a lot of movement in the last several days uh, with, for me and my sons. Uh, we did a whirlwind trip the second half of this week, um, I think 1,200 miles of driving uh, and, and a lot of sleep deprivation to go uh, backpack down in North Carolina at one of the, my favorite trails that, um, in Pisgah National Forest that um, I hadn't been to in 20 years but I deeply wanted to show my family one day. Uh, and so, so anyways, uh, what, what we, we did was, it's called the Art Lobe Trail. I'm just going to share about it just for a second. Um, the, it, was, it was a lot of fun, gorgeous, gorgeous hiking. Uh, but uh, but we, we had a paper map. The trail goes through significant areas of protected wilderness in North Carolina. So what that means is that even the trail markings and signs, the forest rangers do not like to put up in prominent ways. They don't even want to put a sign out there to tell you where to go. So the unique beauty and isolation of this trail is balanced by the fact that it's not always easy to follow. And so while we had a map that gave us the basic ideas, we couldn't always tell if we were exactly on the trail or not. So the, way, the only way you do this, because we were actually on a linear trail, so we, we arrived at the destination, and hired a shuttle to drive us down to the beginning of this 31-mile trail, and then we hiked back up, and it, it was a hike from south to north. So the only way that we would know how to do this is make sure that when in doubt, you are always traveling north. So we used our shadows, and we used the compass from time to time to make sure that, okay, we haven't seen a marking for a mile, but where's our shadow? Okay, we're going north, it's still morning, the sun comes up on the east, so that means the shadow's on the left. Okay, good. And so we didn't have a lot of exact answers, but we knew that as long as we were moving in the right direction, that we would be able to, to go toward the destination. And, and, when, and when we knew that we were moving, even if we weren't positive always about all the details around the trail, um, and when we compared it to the compass or to the sun, uh, two things happened. No, number one, the journey together was extraordinary. And you can just see that after days of walking through some tunnels, this is where the trail kind of curled up over five, 6,000 feet of elevation on the East Coast. Um, and, uh, and in addition to the, uh, the journey being so extraordinary, the beauty that we got to experience was absolutely breathtaking up at the top. And so those are just a couple of, of pictures. We actually did not, I, I had my, if any of you sent me messages or anything, I didn't get them because uh, the second day the guys were like, let's take off our watches and turn off everything and have no idea what time of day it is and let's eat when we're hungry and let's sleep when the sun goes down. Let's get up when it, go, when it gets up, which is super early when you're on the top of a mountain, by the way. Uh, but okay, so we live in a movement-oriented faith. We have been given a movement-oriented faith, following Jesus, trusting the leading of the Holy Spirit, movement-oriented. And the intent is, that, when we're, is that, that we're not just moving, but we're moving towards something, and we're moving with someone. And of course, that, that something is God and his kingdom, and the with is Jesus as he's even walking us toward his own centered self. 
Um, so, so when we think about this and when we think about what it means to have a center-oriented faith, and we've used these images last week, we talked about what does it mean, you know, to see Jesus as our center, and instead of having a bounded set where a bunch of people are in or out, which creates a focus on what is the line exactly, and are you following it? And usually, we say belief, but usually it ends up being behavior that we really, really want to rank to the side in and out. Um, instead of that, that, that um, this often ends up being a model that we call a bounded set that often brings kind of a, um, if we're not very careful, a very pharisaical attitude. But instead of that, to do a faith where the focus is not the boundary line nearly as much as it is the center. And therefore, what matters is our posture. Are we moving toward the center or are we moving away from the center? This is why people who had everything together from the outside, Jesus was highly critical of if their heart was not moving toward the center. And people whose lives looked like they were totally falling apart, if their orientation was to desire to know Jesus, to move toward the things of the kingdom, they were in a better position and they were welcomed as one of the beloved community, even if they had very physical brokenness about them that was very noticeable by the outside world, okay? So this is what it means to live in a movement-oriented faith, all right? And so we're going um, to take a look at that, but, but uh, as you're going to see in a second, um, we, we have to ask the question of what does it mean for us to say that God is the center of our faith? Because doesn't everybody say that? And does it even mean anything? So we have to go a little bit deeper and understand what the nature of God is. So today, um, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to use some of these video clips that we used the last couple of weeks from one of my uh, former seminary professors. And so this one, I'm going to actually let Mark teach through a scripture from Luke um, to help us see. And it's a very, very familiar scripture. All right. Um, it's from Luke 15. And in the midst of this, um, what we have is, uh, let's see, I might have lost my connection. Can you go to the Luke 15 slide for me? Thanks, Adam. Um, in the beginning of this, and you'll hear about this in just a second, I want to help us wrap it up and give some direction at the end, um, but we're going to hop right in in just a moment. At the beginning of this, what we have is a setting where Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners, okay? Sinners would have been all of the unclean people on the outside, all right? Um, but he's also with Pharisees, and they can hear and see what's happening, okay? But I want you to take note of one thing. I want you to take note of the direction of the tax collectors and sinners before we hop in. Because what does it say they were doing? Gathering what? Around Jesus. So there's movement in this sentence itself. Coming near is one of the other translations. Tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus, okay? And so, so we have already a little bit of movement that you can just see right there. Um, but I'm going to let uh, Mark unpack this. He's going to tell the story in a few minutes from the perspective of a neighbor. Um, it's kind of fun. And then I'm going to help us kind of move toward dialogue and application afterwards this week. So settle in. It's about a 13-minute, 12-minute video. Um, and, um, and again, I'm disconnected. Can you get us started? Thanks, Adam. Here we go. It's not enough to say simply that God is at the center of a church. What do we mean when we say God? For instance, 
The image that some Christians have of God is a judge with accusing eyes ready to impose a penalty or of a stern authority figure demanding obedience, ready to punish if we step out of line. Yet for others, God is the ultimate nice guy or kindly grandmother, only gifts and words of affirmation. Reality is we can draw centered set diagrams, talk about the well image and offer explanations of the character of a centered church. But if people in the church view God as an accusing figure of conditional love, they will still experience church as bounded. And in the opposite way, if they have a fuzzy, non-confrontational God of only partial love, it will hinder them from having a centered church experience. So rather than just saying God is our center, we must describe who the God of the center is. Our conceptions about God will influence whether we do church in a bounded, fuzzy, or centered way. How do we know what God is like? Well, through descriptions in the Bible, and especially through looking at Jesus, God incarnate. Of course, we cannot in one short video fully answer the question, how do we describe the God of the center? Yet, the one passage we will look at, Luke 15, is a great place to evaluate if the God of the Bible lines up more with a bounded approach, a fuzzy approach, or a centered approach. At the beginning of Luke 15, we read that tax collectors and sinners are coming near to Jesus because they want to listen to him. We might think, well, of course they want to listen to Jesus. But really, this is quite amazing. Other religious leaders exclude and shame these outcasts, prostitutes, tax collectors, those who don't go to the synagogue or comply with diet and Sabbath laws. The bounded group ways of the Pharisees communicate to these sinners Stay away until you clean up your act. Jesus communicates the opposite. And it's not just that Jesus lets them sit in the back and listen in. He actually invites them to eat with him, a radical act of acceptance. Now, this is quite upsetting to the Pharisees. He is ignoring their clearly drawn lines. What if other religious leaders start doing the same as Jesus? The lines will lose their power. Picture the scene, outcasts, excluded people are gathered around Jesus listening. And then a bit off to one side, a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law are standing there with their arms crossed like this. And they're looking accusingly at the people, at Jesus, grumbling, mumbling, complaining. Jesus responds to their bounded group line drawing comments by telling the entire crowd, both the insiders and the outsiders, three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. We will focus on the last one, verses 11 through 32, if you'd like to follow along. Now, Jesus didn't need to explain the meaning or significance of ancient customs to his listeners, but many of these details might be lost on us because we live in a different time and culture. I'm gonna expand the story a bit to fill in some of those details. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna retell it from the perspective of a neighbor who lives in the village where this parable was taking place. Well, amazing things have been happening in one family in our village. The younger son asked the father for his inheritance. Can you imagine? Have you ever heard of such a thing? What nerve, what disrespect. He might as well have said, 
Oh, Father, yeah, I wish you'd just die. Get out of the way. Let me have the farm. Of course, we all expected the father to scorn the younger son, perhaps disown him. Instead, he gave his younger son the inheritance. It also amazed us that the older son never intervened, or at least protested that he didn't want to have anything to do with his younger brother's action and the disgrace he'd brought to the family. Well, as news spread around town, a lot of people were pretty upset. And I think the younger son started feeling pretty uncomfortable. So what do you think he did? He tried to sell it. Can you imagine selling ancestral land? What will his father have to live off of when he grows older? And what will this son have to give to his children? Well, trying to sell the land only made things worse for the son. Each person he tried to sell it to got angry and exulted him. He finally found someone to buy it, a merchant newly arrived to town. Well, the son couldn't have felt very welcome here after doing such shameful things, so he took the money and left town. He went off to a Gentile land where he squandered all his money, and then a famine hit. And him, being a foreigner with no connections, no family, he felt the impact of this famine before others. So there he was, living in a foreign land, hungry and feeding pigs for a living. We heard he was so hungry that he wanted to eat the pig food. He'd obviously lost all his dignity. Just think, a Jew feeding pigs for a living and eating their food. The son was starving, but he knew that if he returned home, he would face the scorn of the village. After all, we'd shamed him before he'd left. How much more would we shame him in his degraded condition? And he had blown his complete inheritance in a Gentile land. Now, he must have been worried about his father's anger, but he also certainly knew about the Kezah, our custom of banishing anyone who lost or sold family inheritance among the Gentiles. We want to keep our wealth within Israel. But there he is, desperate. So the son hoped that his father would give him a job as a worker, so he could pay back the inheritance, escape the ban. But he didn't know if his father would even talk to him. So he decided to apologize first. I mean, he's imagining this. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but imagining. Maybe I apologize first, and then maybe his father would listen to his request to get a job. So he, he's walking home, and he's rehearsing. What am I going to say? And he gets this really short speech. He says, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He keeps repeating this line. This is what he's going to say to his father. Now, he wished that there was a way, you know, a back way to sneak into town, just go to his house so none of us would see it. But our homes are all clustered together in the village. Our farmlands spread around outside. He had to come right down the main street of town to get to his house. Well, I was one of the first to see him, and what a sight he was. Dirty, thin, barefoot, wearing patched-up clothes that looked like rags. You know, he was walking like this with his head hung low, hoping we wouldn't recognize him. But I recognized him right away. And I turned into the home and called my sons out to see him because I was glad at how bad he looked. I wanted, I wanted my sons to see this so they wouldn't get, you know, crazy ideas of running off like this. Well, 
Other people heard me yell and they came out of their houses and soon there's this whole crowd there, both sides of the street, and we started yelling at him, insulting him. You worthless pig, leave our village, you foreigner. As the crowds gather and people began preparing to have the Kezah ceremony to ban him from the village, there we were, and all of a sudden I felt, the, I felt the crowd turning this way and looking this way. And you know what I saw? His father was running, yes, running toward us down the street. We were all shocked. In our culture, men do not run in public. How shameful. Just imagine what he exposed, his robes flying up in the air. Then the father hugged and kissed his filthy son. We all shut up. We could not insult or ban the son when his own father, who had the most right to be upset, was welcoming him home. In fact, his father was humiliating himself to stop us from shaming his son. And then the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you see that? He didn't say anything about, give me a job, make me a hired hand. He stopped, left off half his little speech. I think the father's reaction changed the son's whole perspective. He must have been amazed by his father's love and acceptance and grateful for the way his father had saved him from our scorn. Maybe he realized that he couldn't bring about a reconciliation on his own or try to buy back his relationship with his father. He had done more than waste money. He had hurt his father. So all he could do was ask for mercy. Well, the father left no doubt about whether he was accepting the son back. He responded by telling his servants, put sandals on his feet, put the ring on his finger, a fine robe on him. And without a word of rebuke, the father covered up his son's filth and shame, honoring him as a true son. And then he told the servants, prepare a feast, kill the fatted calf. Notice he didn't say, you know, go grab a lamb or a chicken. This meant the whole village was invited. Well, I was glad to hear that. The father not only accepted the son back, but he honored him and celebrated his return in the presence of the entire village. But that's only half the story. So I went out into the, the fields to work the rest of the day, and it came back to get ready for the dinner and then headed down to the house for the big celebration. And I or others are arriving um, for the celebration and just as I was getting there, the older son, who had been out in the fields all day, he came back. So I paused to let him enter in so he could take his place as greeter at his father's party. You know, that's our custom. The older son stands as greeter. But he stopped and asked the servant, hey, what's happening here? And the servant said, your father's celebrating and welcoming back your brother. The older son turned away from the house and said, I'm not joining this celebration. I deserve a party, not my brother. And then he made this big, huge scene in front of the guests. What disrespect, such a shameful thing to do. Then I looked and I saw the father pass through the door, look out and see all this commotion. And the father comes out of the house. Well, I expected the father to be furious, to come out and grab his older son, you know, by the collar, put him in his place. But the father came out. And rather than scolding his son for insulting him, the father, he pleaded with his son to join the celebration. For the second time today, the father sought to restore a dishonoring son. 
But the older son continued to insult his father. He spoke with no respect, without using a title. He yelled in his father's face, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Once again, the father went out of his way to try to bring the older son into the family celebration, shaming himself for the sake of his son. He responded, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Don't you wish you knew the end of the story? Wouldn't we all like to know exactly what happens? Uh, because the story itself, much like uh, what you just saw, the story ends without an ending when Jesus tells it. So did the older son go in or did the older son stay. Jesus just leaves it there at this awkward hanging moment. Many of you are familiar with this story, uh, but Jesus leaves the listeners and us to their and our imaginations. Remember who the listeners were, all right? The listeners in this story were the Pharisees, and it was up to them to determine how the story would end, because it hadn't ended yet, and the tax collectors and sinners who probably already had sent some resolution to their part of the story, at least in some way. But Jesus um, has declared that he is offering love and invitation and forgiveness and welcome to the people who would be seen as the outsiders, the sinners, and the unholy. And then he's saying to these Pharisees, will you come in or not? Will you join the party? Will you join the movement? Um, Jesus is also uh, communicating something else. And this is really, really important if we're going to start to apply this in our, in our own lives. Uh, the older son, through keeping the law, through external action, has still done, like Mark said, shameful things that damage relationships with his father. So, so Jesus is not simply saying, hey folks, you need to welcome these people to the Pharisees. What he's specifically saying is, those of you who have stood in such a way in judgment, you actually are also sinners. In your own spirits, you have done things that have damaged the relationship with the Father, but you're also invited into the welcome party. Insiders, outsiders, sinners, Pharisees, this story's about the Father, not the Son. These, these headings were, were given to us later, um, but the, the idea that, that the lost son is the ultimate uh, point of the story is betrayed by the actual content of the story that Jesus tells because he's bringing it back to his audience. Um, however, I, uh, the, the father is the, the center here. And the father opens up the table to the obvious sinners and to the judgmental onlookers. A couple additional notes on the story that, that uh, Mark just had to hit briefly. Um, one is that he mentioned the keza or, or the kezaza. Um, people disagree about how it's pronounced because there's no vowels in Hebrew. Um, but, uh, but the, the Kezaza ceremony was this ceremony that, um, that would happen. And it's really interesting. I think it's worth, worth noting. Um, Ken Bailey, he has a book called The Cross and the Prodigal Son. He explains that if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among the Gentiles and then he returned home, 
what would happen was the community would perform this ceremony that when he, when he came back and he arrived at the gates, they would take a pot, okay? And, bef- and as he got to the gates, because the land was very open, you could see people from far away. As he got to the gates, the older men would throw down a pot in front of the young, men, the young man and it would break into pieces. And at, at that time, they would yell, you are now cut off from your people, Okay? You are cut off from your people. It symbolized the broken relationship that now existed between the community and this sinner. So it was about drawing a clear line of separation. You are not one of us. You are not one of your family. You are not one of your community. You are not one of our faith, even. So it was complete rejection. So when we see the father running to the son, which was, again, a shameful act in and of itself, It was likely to intercept him before any ceremony could start. And normally, the father would be a part of that ceremony. And when the father's in the way, the ceremony can't happen. And so there's incredible, incredible imagery just about the extent, the extent that the father goes to stop the boundary from excluding this man who has done so much that he's outside of reach according to the rest of the community. And then another uh, note is that the older brother was intended to be a peacekeeper in the family, the reconciler. So the older brother was the one who would go and make things right anytime things were not right, would restore shalom at any point. So when we're hearing this story, the brother is completely misguided in his attitude because everyone else is hearing the story and saying, why didn't you go and chase after your brother in the first place. You're, that you're not doing what your role is supposed to be doing. You're just standing there instead of offering the help and the assistance that your role requires of you. All right? So he's neglecting his role of being a child of the father. He should have been running after his brother in the first place, inviting him back, doing everything he could. He's not obedient in this story. He's arrogant and he's neglecting his role of care. So in telling these stories, Jesus, here's the interesting and cool thing, he's literally living out what the Father does in this parable. Okay? It's one thing to say that, um, that we should have a centered faith. It's another thing to say that the very nature of God displayed in Jesus is the enactment of a centered faith. Do you understand the difference there? Um, so, so it's not just that this is a good way to believe so that we're not judgmental. It's that it, it reflects the character of God. So Jesus, in eating with sinners, is shaming himself. Jesus is saying, I am not above anyone. I am not untouchable or unapproachable. Okay? I am, I am here to be with every single person that has a desire to move toward me. Whether they look shiny or whether they look busted. And this is really important for us to keep in mind because of what it does within our own spirits when we truly understand that. Um, So uh, Mark calls what Jesus is doing at this point um, a costly demonstration of unexpected love that he enacts even more profoundly at the cross. And for the Pharisees, the righteous ones that are listening in, he's calling them to task on their mistreatment and yet he's still inviting them in to lay down their status, their power, their pride to join the family. So Jesus reframes the narrative in this moment of religious faith on the whole. Essentially, he is establishing that in the kingdom of God, um, 
that relationship will always have priority over rules. Always. That this is the nature of a God of grace. The relationship will always trump rules. <clears throat> Croatian, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, um, who's done incredible work uh, about reconciliation uh, around the world as a Christian, he says this um, in his book Exclusion and Embrace. He says, What is so profoundly different about the new order of the Father is that it is not built around the alternatives as defined by the older brother. <clears throat> Either strict adherence to the rules or disorder and disintegration. Those are the only options that the brother has. Okay? You are either in or you are out, depending on whether you have or have not broken a rule. He rejected the alternative. This is Jesus, uh, or this is the Father. He rejected the alternative because his behavior was governed by one fundamental rule, that relationship has priority over all rules. Check this final statement out. Before any rule can apply, he is father to his sons, and his sons are brothers to one another. Can we just sit with that for a moment and consider the implications? That if you lived your life, if you looked at your faith and you said this, before any rules apply, God is father to his children and we are brothers and sisters to one another. And if that was the foundation, think about how that would change the way that we dialogue. If we sat down to have a conversation and there's a disagreement, and the foundational statement that we started with is that God is our Father and we are brother and sister. How would that change the tone? How would that change the attitude? We've lost this ability within the church and within our world to be able to have dialogue that honors the spirit of Christ within the church and the image of God within everyone. We've lost this ability. And yes, it has to be a two-way street because we can try to give dignity and if dignity is not given to us, it's very difficult to have any meaningful progress. But just consider, before any rule can apply, he's father to his sons, the humanity that we begin with will change how we approach the rest of our faith, how we approach our interactions. Now notice that the relationship doesn't mean fuzziness. We're talking about um, bounded sets, fuzzy sets, and centered sets. It doesn't just mean fuzziness. There is confrontation to the Pharisees and the older brother for missing what the father is all about and maintaining their superiority. Right? He highlights what is broken and he provides an opportunity for them to change. He calls them to enter in because they're standing on the outside. And equally for the younger son, it's really important that he doesn't deny that the younger son has gone astray. The father calls him lost and dead in verse 32. Right? So note the difference here between fuzziness. One um, fellow seminary student that was working on this noted the father didn't just say, you know, he was on a journey of self-discovery and he realized that he was now in a more integrated and healthy place to come back to his family. Yes, that might have been part of what was going on. However, no, he was lost. He was experiencing brokenness and death within himself. Okay? A church centered on Jesus, we understand resurrection. Okay? We understand that Jesus came to transform people from death to life. We don't just say, hey, you know, Come as you are and, and sit. We say, no, we are on a journey together toward the life that Jesus offers. Remember last week we talked about the well image. 
that you don't have to build fences for cattle if you dig deep wells because people and cattle will be drawn to where there is life. And so if we believe that Jesus is the source of life, we will be moving toward the center and we will move from death, from dehydration to life. It's not always linear. We're often broken and messed up in the process. But we're moving toward life, not just toward being kind to each other. So that means, yes, we do. We walk through and we talk about justice issues and destructive habits and what it means to move away from the past and move toward the life that Jesus gives. There's no question about that. But what it means is that we lay down our arrogance and we lay down our shame and together we move toward Jesus and that can create something really beautiful. (sighs) Um, Meeting Jesus at the center is what helps us become like him. And then maybe we can get to the point where we are the type of church that invites both the Pharisee and the tax collector into the party together to both be changed. There's no ambiguous center. Transformation comes every time that we truly let Jesus speak acceptance to us. Um, But it's movement, right? I said at the beginning, we are a movement-oriented people. That means we're pursuing a dynamic experience of God. If Jesus is at our center and we are arrows and not simply an in or an out crowd, then our goal becomes actually to draw closer all the time, to draw closer and closer to Jesus, understanding that Jesus is also alive and dynamic and is going to be leading us in new directions himself. So our attention will be on what God's up to rather than simply relying on our knowledge about God. So we can't do it without a dynamic connection with Jesus. We can't just do it with information about God. Um, and that changes how our priorities. It changes how we see our personal life and rhythms. changes how we see our church life and rhythms. It changes how we see our interpersonal relationships. Um, so we have to ask the question, if we are doing this, if, if we are trusting the reality of moving toward God actively, what does it look like to be the church together? Because, friends, it certainly doesn't look like this right here as the totality of it all. This is a nice touch point, but it can't look like this as the totality of it all. Because I'm, I'm the only one talking right now. That's just not enough. It won't shape our souls. Hopefully we benefit from the times of, of teaching and sharing, but, but there has to be this element of all of us journeying together toward the life of God, using our gifts, engaging with one another in all sorts of ways that are active, praying for one another, exploring God's heart together, Learning, learning this Jesus way together. Um, so, we have to ask really difficult questions if we really believe that Jesus is at our center. Next week is a, um, a brunch. We've hit our eight-week rhythm already. Um, but next week is brunch. And then after that, we're going to, to dialogue specifically in real practical ways about what does it look like as a church to truly embody a centered understanding in the way that we live out our faith. Um, Like, what are some of the practices that we need to learn to be about that will help us move toward Jesus in such a way? Uh, So so that's going to be kind of where we're going. Um, And hopefully we'll we'll dig a little bit deeper. Uh, But for today, for today, let's have a little bit of dialogue in a moment. There is security in a centered belovedness of God that keeps us moving toward him and protects us from this temptation of status-seeking and line-drawing that often relies on exclusion. Okay? Uh, Pastor Debbie Blue says, 
uh, she says this, this amazing quote in one of her talks, there is something in me that lurches toward building my identity over and against another. It's almost like we don't know how to feel good except by comparing our goodness, our beauty, our intelligence, and our righteousness over and against others. There's something in me that lurches toward building my identity over and against another. And so a huge part of this prodigal son story, this story of, of the, the father, is that God is saying, hey, eyes on me. <laughs> you know, this is my identity. It's like when, uh, when Peter and, um, and John are talking and Jesus says to Peter, hey, one day you're going you're gonna to move um, in this direction and your faithfulness is going to lead to some pain, right? And, and, you know, like he's talking about how Peter's going to be a martyr one day. And Peter looks over and says, John, looks at John and says, what about him? <laughs> and his response to John is, what is that to you? And we won't get into the theology of him saying maybe he'll be alive, but um, maybe he's going to stay alive. But the point, the point being, hey, keep your eyes on me. I'm inviting you to follow me. And when we do that, you will find that you don't have to deal with so many feelings about judgment and fixing others. And together, instead, we can journey toward a wholeness with Jesus. So we find ourselves blown away by the grace and the beauty of Jesus each of these times, but also uncomfortable because as readers, we're left with this cliffhanger, this unanswerable question, or an unanswered question. It is answerable, by the way. Uh, will we enter? We're invited every single day and every moment even to enter into the feast of God. But we have to lay down our weapons in order to enter into that celebration. We have to embrace both the sinning younger brothers and the sinning older brothers in our lives. You know why? Because depending on the day, we're both, right? So we have to learn how to embrace that journey where the clearly broken and the clearly self-righteous lay down their secondary identities and they find rest together in Jesus. All right, let's, let's uh, just pause to be still. Let whatever sink in needs to sink in, and, uh, and then we'll have a, bit of, a few minutes for dialogue. Lord, in a, in a well-known story like this that maybe some of us have heard even preached on or taught on a dozen times, I pray that you stir us in a fresh way, with fresh joy or fresh discomfort in the right ways. Uh, to be reminded of how actually radical you really are. Help us to see and hear what you want us to see and hear. Even in this moment right now, being fully present with you. Help us to just be there in that moment, hearing you tell the story. And with fresh conviction, deciding what we're going to be about and which way we're going to move. Amen.